0: Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, pour out your Spirit on us this morning, Father. Open our hearts. Take away our worries and concerns, things that we distract ourselves with, and and set our mind on you. Set our mind on your wisdom, Father, and on your power in our life, on your sovereignty. Help us see past our circumstances, Father. Help us see the world as you do. Help us understand the lessons of a man like Gideon, who was, who was weak in so many ways, who who led a improbably weak army, a, a man who had no reason to expect he could make a difference for you. Except, Father, that he knew he had your power and your wi- your will behind him. And and we hear this story, and then we may have opportunity to look around at our own circumstances and realize uh, we're not mighty. Uh, Oak Hill Bible Church isn't mighty, Father. There's nothing here that the world would say has much potential to do anything good. The world would look at us and and pass us by as they often do. But, Father, it's not about us. It wasn't about Gideon. It wasn't about his men. It was always about you. And you've told us in your word it was intentional that he would be seen as small so that you would be seen as present, so that your glory would be for you alone. Can we live like that, Father? Can we see the world that way? Can we come into this building on a Sunday or go about our week working together in various ways and can we see that our smallness is to our advantage, not to our weak, our disadvantage and that that who we are in Christ has never been a matter of personal strength or capability. It's always been a matter of your spirit, Father. It's not by might that you will be glorified. So Lord, I pray that what we're learning today would encourage us, encourage us to think more boldly about what we can do for you and for the sake of the gospel and how we can be useful to you in that regard. For we know, Father, if you can do these things with a man like Gideon, you, you're able to do them at any point in time with anyone and certainly with us. We just need to have the faith that you asked of him, the strength of faith, Father. We pray for that. And we pray this story would help us in that way. Let us see these truths as we open your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week Gideon won that improbable victory against that much stronger army than what I just alluded to in the prayer. And despite having virtually no army, he was able to ensure victory by some creative maneuvering on the battlefield, remember, and how the Lord used him to prosecute this battle against a much stronger force. And we know the Lord had always intended for this to happen. The whole point of this was to happen. The Lord had brought the Midianites in for a period of time. That time was up. Gideon was going to kick them out. So this was the plan. And then we also observe the way Gideon responded to the Lord's call. And we've come to recognize this is a more complicated story than that. This isn't just a story about a guy that does marvelous things because God's able to use him. This is also a story of a man who could have been much more than he was. That his weaknesses were a real impediment to serving God. His fearfulness was a problem. His unfamiliarity with hearing and obeying the word of God, his lack of, of experience doing that, his need for repeated reinforcement in order to trust the Lord's faithfulness. It's easy to twist these things and make them advantages when scripture is very clear that they were not. In that way, Gideon becomes a closer child for the declining state of Israel in these days of judges. The thing we've been noticing, the cycle we've been studying all the way through now and continue to study, this backdrop in which men are doing what is right in their own eyes, which means they are self-centered. Self-righteous, far from God. That's the state of Israel in these days. Men unwilling and unable to serve God, to unify even for the purpose of serving God. Everybody just off doing their own thing. And then all of the ungodliness and the sin that comes from such a climate, from such a way of life among all of the people. It is only because of the Lord's grace and mercy that the nation of Israel still exists at all or hasn't dissolved into utter apostasy. That's the nature of this time. So given this backdrop in Gideon's story, it won't surprise you to find out that Gideon's success on the battlefield does not transfer into his walk thereafter. In fact, Gideon and his countrymen are quickly going to return to their true nature even as the battle is still ongoing. This slide back into apostasy is already happening before we're done with the fight. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's rejoin Gideon's army as they press the fight against... The Midianites toward the end of chapter seven. We're going to just back up a couple verses to get full context this morning. Go to chapter seven, verse 24, and then we'll read forward from there into chapter eight. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Beth and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeab, And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeab at the winepress of Zeab while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeab to Gideon from across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. So we read last week part of what I just finished with there at the end of chapter 7, that men... Uh, that Gideon's call went out to the men of Ephraim and what he asked them to do was to join the battle near the end of the early stages, near the end of the early battle against the fleeing Midianites. Remember, the Midianites had been scattered out of the Jezreel Valley by the the tactic that Gideon used with the lights and, and the horns and all the rest. And then as they fled, they fled back to their homeland, which would have been going east to get across the Jordan into the lands of Ammon and Moab, etc., And as they're trying to retreat out of the land of Canaan, Gideon says, don't let them go. We've got to kill these guys. Otherwise, they're just going to come back and fight us again. Ephraim is the tribal area of Israel that is on the border of Jordan, on the east side of the land of Canaan, sort of midsection in the land. So it's in the right place to create a blockade to stop that retreat. So he sends word quickly to the uh, Ephraimites, stop these guys. And they do. And as you can see, they're successful in dispatching with most of the army, including killing the two captains of the army, the two leaders of the army, who they then return with the heads of these guys. Uh, Another gruesome detail to the book of Judges, but uh, hopefully that keeps you awake for the next five minutes. Imagining that he takes the heads back. They take the heads back into the land. They find Gideon. And then it says when they delivered the heads of, of the enemies to Gideon, they come with a complaint. And here's the complaint, verse eight, or, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. They say to Gideon, Why didn't you include us in the original call to arms when you assembled your army and went into battle against the Midianites? How come we weren't included? Back in chapter 6, you may remember, this is how it went when Gideon made that call. He called up the army in response to the angel of the Lord's instructions. And when he called the army, we read in chapter 6, 34 and 35. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet. And the Abazarites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Now you notice Gideon sent messengers to specific locations, which then resulted in a specific response. But you also notice the places he sent these messengers were the tribes that are geographically located around the area that the battle took place. That is in the northern half of Israel, around the Jezreel Valley. One of them is Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the tribes in this time of history that was vying to be the prominent tribe, the the chief tribe, if you will. They were a large territory. They had a large population. And so they were vying to have that centerpiece role in the nation of Israel. But you'll notice, as you hear in that list, there was no mention of Ephraim. Gideon never summoned anyone from Ephraim. And these men now, having prosecuted the end of the battle, taking the lives of these two captains, they've come back now with a grudge against Gideon because they're saying, how come we weren't included in the original group? In other words, implying you didn't think we were worthy enough to be part of this battle. Now, at this point in Israel's history, tribal leadership had yet to fully... Emerge. You have each tribe sort of doing their own thing. In fact, even down to the individual level, you've already heard men are doing what is right in their own eyes. So you don't have a lot of collective organizing inside the nation of Israel. You're just a tribe and little more. So some tribes naturally were larger. Some tribes were smaller. Some had more resources than others, depending on where they were in the land. But what we don't see is just one tribe or maybe two tribes leading the rest, which happens later in Israel's history there was some expectation that eventually some tribe or group of tribes might emerge from all of this mess and start to control and lead the nation. And there were certainly tribes that had set their sights on that, that had personal ambition toward that outcome. Two of the tribes who were central to that thinking, two tribes that had sort of looked at this possibility of becoming the tribe was Manasseh and Ephraim, two of the larger tribes. Arguably, historically, the most politically ambitious tribe has been Ephraim. It was one of the larger tribes. It was located in the middle of the country. It was a relatively large tract of land. It was rich with resources. It fancied itself a contender. So, as Israel wins this great victory over a hated enemy, Ephraim has felt slighted to be left out. They have contended now with Gideon as a way of reasserting their power against this rising leader and to make sure they've got a seat at the table when whatever new government or or emerging autocracy comes to power, they'll have some say in it. They just don't want to be left out. It's a power struggle. Now, let's pause for a moment and put their concerns in perspective just for a second. First, Ephraim had every opportunity to fight against the Midianites. The Midianites have been doing this stuff in the land for seven years, remember? For seven years, No one has stopped Ephraim from taking up arms and defending the people of Israel. No one said they couldn't. No one has ever prevented them from organizing an army. At any point, this large, powerful tribe that fancied itself in control could have done something to stop the Midianites. What were they doing? Nothing. Now, of course, the Lord would not have allowed them to have success had they tried. We understand that in God's providence, there was a plan here. Midianites for seven years Then Gideon pushes them out. We get it, right? But I'm saying from the perspective of the Nebuchadnezzar themselves, who are they to blame if they didn't get into the fight? No one stopped them. And at this point, they're only complaining because somebody else has already done the thing that they now wish they could have been part of. Only after the fact do they have a complaint. And speaking of the Lord, they are also ignoring the obvious fact that this army that won the battle was not a large army. I mean, they're kind of ignoring the whole circumstances of what just transpired. God chose the army, not Gideon. You remember? And when he did choose it, he chose 300 of the least qualified men he could find. This is a tiny force absent any strong warrior, any competent leader. So you can't look at the way the Bible was won and act slighted as if Gideon was saying, I'm sorry, but you all weren't qualified to make my army. No one was qualified to make his army. That's the whole point. This is by definition, not an army. Which would beg a question, how did you guys even do this? You see, their whole perspective is wrong. They should be asking the question, how did you win? Not, why weren't we a part of it? Finally, they are contending with Gideon as if they were victims of unfair treatment by their Jewish brothers because they had been slighted by being left out of the battle. That's their argument, right? Their argument is, how dare you? But in reality, the Ephraimites are the ones who are trying to gain the upper hand on their brothers. Their whole problem here is that they didn't do the very thing that someone just did to them. They've been beaten by their brothers at their own game, and now they're incensed about it. They wanted to be the dominant tribe, but these sets of circumstances put a kink in that plan for them. So there's hardly an opportunity for them to sit on high ground in some kind of self-righteous way and say, you guys are being unfair to the rest of us. We were going to be unfair to you and you beat us. Now I want you to remember all of this contention happens while the battle is still going on on the eastern border of the nation. It's still unfinished. So Gideon can't afford to waste a lot of time at this point dealing with this kind of of trouble within his own ranks. He's got a battle to fight. And so let's look at how he deals with this situation in verses 2 through 3. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of ebi God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Well, then the anger toward him subsided when he said that. Gideon uses psychology as his defense. This is a kind of psychological argument. He says to the men, is not the harvest of Ephraim better than the harvest of Ebeezer. What he means is this. Ebeezer is a common family name among the tribe of Manasseh, which was one of those tribes that fought in the battle, one of the places he called men from, right? More importantly, it's the chief rival to Ephraim for power. So he picks that tribe, that name from that tribe, as a poster child, if you will, for the ones who fought in the battle. And what he's saying is, Who obtained the better part of this fight, Manasseh or you? And of course, when he puts it in those terms, the men of Ephraim have to sit back and consider, well, what would have been the best part of this battle to be a part of? And then Gideon points out to the fact that Ephraim had the opportunity to take the lives of the two leaders, the two captains of this army, which was the prize of the battle. That's the end of the battle. When you win is when you capture the flag, right? They got to capture the flag, so to speak. Meanwhile, what did Gideon's team get? Gideon says, didn't you get the better end of the deal? Because consider what my guys had to do. My guys just fought in the common battles. We were just the common soldiers in the valley chasing the, the people out and doing all the grunt work. You got the glory moment. So consider yourselves as having been given the greater honor as compared to Manasseh, in other words. He's playing on the very thing he knows they're worried about. So clearly he's appealing to their pride, using a little psychology to soothe their damaged egos. And, of course, we're told it works. The Ephraimites go away satisfied. Now, at first, you know, I might look at this story and think, hey, well done, Gideon, that's pretty good. I'll have to remember that when I'm at work. There's got to be some way, some way I can put that to use, or maybe with my wife or something. No, I can tell you right now, that doesn't work with your wife. Consider the outcome if you judge it merely on results. You say, well, you know, he diffused the situation. He did it quickly. I mean, that's a good thing. All of these things seem to argue that, hey, good job, guy. And that's true, of course, but the request of these men was clearly wrong, right? Their heart in this is wrong. Their goal is wrong. Their interest is in division, not in unity. They're certainly not considering God in any of this. This is all selfish, egotistical, humanistic. And what does Gideon respond with? More of the same. Remember what the Lord said before he selected his final group of, quote, warriors? Remember what he said in chapter 7, verse 2? The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands, for Israel will become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. That was the chief concern the Lord had in taking Israel into this battle, right? So instead of giving him a large army, he brings them down to 300 pitiful characters, and then he sends them into battle with no weapons. Just lights and horns. I mean, it's it's reminiscent of Jericho, right? The whole point is, you can't explain this except that I did it. And yet, here we are, and the battle isn't even done yet, and you have the tribes of Israel arguing amongst themselves about what? Who was more important to the fight? I mean, in so many words, that's basically what this concern boils down to. So now the question becomes, Gideon, the judge of Israel, the man responsible to lead his people under these circumstances, right? Does he have the presence of mind to mention that the Lord delivered the leaders into the hands of Ephraim? In other words, does he have the presence of mind to remind them who won this battle? How they got to the point of killing those two captains? No. And I think he misses an opportunity here as a result. He should have turned their attention back to the Lord because the Lord himself was clearly the one doing the work. He should have said something like this to Ephraim. I did not call you into battle because it wasn't up to me. The Lord picked His army and He didn't pick you and He picked the ones He picked because He had a purpose. And who are you to second-guess the Lord? And then He could have called them out to repent. He could have told them, you know guys, you better seek the Lord's forgiveness for your pride and for your contention against the Lord's anointed because you remember the last time that God's people rose up against the Lord's anointed within the camp and said they don't like His leadership and they don't think He's doing the right thing and how come we don't get a bigger place in this plan? You remember the last time that happened? Numbers 16, verse 28, Moses said to a group of men who were contending with him, much like you see here. Moses says, by this you shall know the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds and that this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men or if they suffer the fate of all men, well, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, well, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all those words, the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. You see, that's what could have happened. And I'm not saying it was in God's plan that it would have, but my point is Gideon is supposed to be God's representative and the man who, who now takes this role, this mantle upon himself is God anointed, you would think he might have the presence of mind to tell these guys, shut up, sit down and start coloring because this is what the Lord is doing, not something I'm doing and you have no right to second guess the Lord. Meanwhile, we've got a battle going on. Put your pride back in your pocket and let's go. Here you see another example of one of the critical flaws in Gideon's walk. He doesn't live with a confidence in the Lord's power and might. He works to solve problems with human thought, with human logic. Psychology, in other words, replaces scripture for him here. Reliance on God's power has been set aside. And in its place, Gideon seeks the power of his own wisdom, his own rhetoric here. And this moment is characteristic of what we've seen him doing in the past. Gideon is is working to move quickly to solve a problem that the Lord is already at work solving and in the meantime missing the opportunity to do the very ministry he was appointed to do I think Christians fall into this a lot we get very focused on task and we forget that the doing is in God's control it's the being that is a part of how we're to serve in ministry be a Christian not so much do Christian things and we mix the two up too often and we define our goodness and our usefulness to God in terms of our activity rather than in terms of who we are. Gideon's not the right guy yet. And his accomplishments are not indicative of his spiritual maturity. They're only indicative of God's power to use weak things. Anyway, the battle is going on. So Gideon gets back to work at this point, And he has a weary army of 300 men. And he's dealt with this contentious, ungodly culture. And you can see it now surfacing in its selfishness. It's not going to stop. Look at verse 4. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. He said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Gideon said, All right. When the Lord has given Zebah and Zalmanah into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He went from there to Penuel, and he spoke similarly to them, and the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now start by noticing he's still got 300 men with him. That's a pretty remarkable thing all its own. Remember, He's moved from the Jezreel Valley now down to these two cities, Sarkoth and Peniel, which are actually east of the Jordan, about 40, 50 miles from where he started through hill country and difficult terrain. He's been battling with men. We're not sure to what extent it's been hand-to-hand combat or what, but he's been doing something with them. And he hasn't lost a guy. The dog water lapping guys, he hasn't lost a single one of them. And they've all made this trip with no provisions, it would appear. So it's pretty remarkable. But now they're weary. They're they're largely hungry. That's the main issue here. They're exhausted and they're hungry, weak from a lack of food. So as they reach Sakoff, this is, as I said, a city on the east side of the Jordan. It's in the territory of Gad. We're still in the area where the Jews have settled the land. So this is technically Gadite land. So the people in these two cities are Gadites. They're Jews. The first town, Sukkoth, is right across the river. Penuel another five miles or so further east, so they're relatively close together in a plain that is around the... If you've been to the Dead Sea, you know that big open plain between the hills that are on both sides. This is just north of that, but it's in that big open plain that he's moving at this point. And so they come up to the first town and they ask for help, and they're not getting it, of course. This is not terribly surprising. I mean, it shouldn't have been this way, but think about it from purely human terms. These folks live a lot closer to Midian than they do to the rest of the Jewish population. So they're concerned about aligning themselves with Gideon over the Midianites because if Gideon doesn't win this battle, the Midianites are going to come back and take it out on them. That's the whole point of them saying, you know, we don't see the uh, kings in your hands yet. Uh, We're not going to take sides on you just yet. And what else are they seeing, by the way? They're seeing Gideon leading 300 guys that don't look like they have any business being in battle against the powerful Midianites. So they're they're sitting there doing the math, right? They're going, hmm, I could bet on you guys or I could bet on those guys. I'm not betting on you. In fact, I'm pretty much sure I'm never going to see you again. Good luck. And then, of course, what does Gideon do? Well, in his pride, he reacts in anger. And he makes threats against these two cities. He says to the first, I'm going to come back and I'm going to beat you with thorns and thistles. It sounds like an odd thing, doesn't it? Just doesn't seem like it's much of a threat. But if you have ever seen the thorns that grow in Palestine, these things are nasty. This is not some little thing. You know, they're going to tear your skin up. They're bad news. Trust me. So he's talking about a scourging that would have left them bloodied and flesh torn and all the rest. And then, of course, for the city of Penuel, he's saying, I'm going to tear down your tower. What he means is I'm going to remove all the city defenses, which basically means we're going to wipe out your town. Now, I want to put perspective back onto this conversation for us here just for a moment. Back a minute earlier, what had Gideon confronted? He had confronted a rash, impulsive, prideful group of Ephraimites who had made a complaint about the fact that they were not being perceived properly and now he's displaying exactly the same weaknesses himself his pride has gotten the better of him because he has this pitiful army remember and it's pitiful because god made it pitiful because god wanted it to be perceived as pitiful that's the goal not to look strong but to look the opposite of strong and the only reason they've had any success is because god is the one doing it now though look at how he's acting He's walking around with a chip on his shoulder. He's expecting the world to look at his army like his 300 seals or something. And there's no doubt you're going to win. Well, sure, have all the bread you can take. I mean, why would he expect that? I mean, I'm not saying they were right to refuse him. That's not my point. My point is that once the refusal came, he acts as if this is the most unjustified refusal that any man could ever experience. And yet he is exactly what they perceive him to be, except for the fact that he has God on his side. But how did he appeal to the need? Did he say, this is the Lord's army and the Lord's army needs your provision? No. He says, we're here to fight the Midianites, feed us. And they said, you don't look like you're going to win. And he said, oh, really? Well, I'm going to come back. I'm going to kick your, you know, whatever when I come back and show you how strong I am. Is this a man operating in the spirit or in the flesh? It's an easy answer, isn't it? He boasts of his ability to conquer and to defeat and he makes threats to prove his strength. Do you notice how the Lord is farther and farther away from Gideon's walk and his mind right now, the way he's operating is not under the influence of the Spirit. The Lord's still working with him because that's how the Lord is determined to go. But that doesn't mean that everything Gideon says and does is according to the Lord's will. And these are clearly reflections of the fact that he's not in his will in the way he's thinking and acting. Once the Lord granted him the victory, Gideon's perspective starts to change, and he goes from meek insecure servant of God to arrogant, boastful man who has everything coming to him and he's just a warrior, right? He's making two classic mistakes. They're on the opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're both common mistakes you see in the Christian walk. In both cases, they revolve around forgetting the power and preeminence of God and substituting the importance of men, of man over God. Now, in the first case, Gideon could not muster the confidence in the Lord's power to answer the call. He was so fearful that God couldn't do what God was promising. He kept putting out fleeces and he kept asking for proof and he had to rethink it for a while. He had to go down into the camp and get a word from the enemy. And this guy can't say boo because he was so afraid of what might happen next. And, of course, when we studied that, we acknowledged that those behaviors, those patterns, are examples of someone who's not finding confidence in God. Now what's he doing? Now he can't see how he needs the Lord's help. Now he's so self-confident that the Lord doesn't have to be a part of this. I mean, we do this all the time in our own way sometimes. We will tend to see some need and God will direct us and we'll go, oh yeah, God is leading me, I'm going to go do this. And then we say, okay God, I got it from here, I'm good, thank you. As if because he puts us on the path, the rest of it just flows. It never works that way. That's the whole idea of John 15, abide in Christ. You can do nothing without me. So instead of threatening the people for bread, what could he have done? Well, he could have appealed to the Lord for the help. There's an idea. Lord, feed my men. Maybe then you would have found people streaming out of the city with bread, directed by the Spirit to do so, voluntarily giving it. When the people frustrated the needs of his army, what could he have done? Well, he could have looked to the Lord for retribution. He could have said, Lord, deal with these people who have been unkind to your people. Instead, he's acting like the very enemy that he's working To defeat. What did the Midianites do to the Jews? They came in and took all their bread. (laughs) He's defeating a group of people and then repeating their sins. And it's worse, of course, because he's doing it to his own people. And then to top it all off, remember Gideon is a judge. He's the arbiter of justice. He is the man who's supposed to represent righteousness to this people. You might think that a man like that would react with a little more mercy to his own people. When they make a mistake, after all, didn't the Lord react in grace and mercy to Gideon when he couldn't do the right thing, when he couldn't see the Lord's potential to defeat a stronger army? I mean, that's the sin, by the way. The sin here is that the people of these cities took a look at a weak army and said that weak army can't beat a more powerful enemy. But didn't Gideon make the same conclusion? And the Lord didn't beat him up with thorns and thistles. The Lord said, hey, what? let me give you a little counsel. Let me give you a little encouragement so that you can see the truth. But when it comes time to give mercy to someone else, now Gideon's not having any of it, is he? His missteps are good examples of how anyone can operate outside the counsel of the Lord. Some of us fail in the beginning. Some of us, like Gideon, lack confidence that the Lord's power is going to happen in our life, that we're going to see him show up when we need him to. We make excuses. We demand proof. We hesitate, even in the face of clear direction. And when we do these things, then we lose the opportunity to demonstrate faith and to testify to the Lord's power. So we miss an opportunity at the beginning. But then there's others who are okay in the beginning, but they fall in the end. And they start well. They're confident in the Lord to start with. They know His power and all the rest. But when success comes, as the Lord permits, well then somewhere along the way they stop seeing their success as a product of God's grace And they start assigning all of that success to themselves. How many people in ministry can you think of whose track of life, the course of their ministry goes exactly like that? But we talk about people like this, unfortunately, from time to time. That man of pastoral ministry or that woman in teaching or doing whatever, who they started so well. They had this humbleness about them. They had this attitude that God was using them. They were concerned that they weren't even capable of doing what God wanted, that they were not powerful enough in their own right. They recognized their weakness and on and on. And then somewhere along the way, the crowds got big and the sign out front got bigger and the book deals came or whatever. And all of a sudden now it's all about them. It's only about them. And that's the pride of every heart that lies just beneath the surface. And God can deal with our pride, certainly, and he does. The issue is, are we going to work with him in that or not? And Gideon is on the brink here of moving beyond what God has appointed him to do into looking at himself as some kind of General with the skill and the, and the army to do anything, and God's not even in the conversation anymore. In the first case, you lack the faith to suppress your fear and your doubt. And in the second case, you lack the faith to suppress your pride and your arrogance. We need to deal with both. Unfortunately, Gideon is guilty of both here. He lacked faith in the beginning. Now he lacks humility in the end. Now look where it goes next. Verse 10. Now zeba. And Zalmunah were in Zarkor and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Zabah and Zalmunah fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zalmunah, and routed the whole army, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Haris, and he captured a youth from Succoth and questioned him. And the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. He came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zebah and Zalmanah, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand, that we should give bread to you men who are weary? He took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. He tore down the Tower of Penil and killed the men of the city. So you see the outcome of the war. We said there was 135,000 men in the beginning. Here you see the numbers adding up. And he's already killed 120,000. Last 15,000 now are going to be taken care of. And once again, he uses sound tactical judgment. That's how he's able to make this battle come out well, or that's the human explanation. He does not attack from the west, which is what they're expecting. He does a flanking maneuver, and he comes around from the east, and he attacks from the east. And they're not expecting it, so he routes them. But of course, at the end of the day, we're all looking at the work of the Lord. You still don't beat 15,000 men with 300 guys, except by the fact that the Lord is working through it. And then he captures the two kings of Midian. Earlier, Ephraim killed the two captains of the army. Now we're talking about the two political leaders, the two kings. Their names are interesting. Their names mean victim and protection refused. Protection refused. Those sound just like descriptions of the cities that Gideon is now going to deal with, right? They become victims of Gideon because they refuse protection for his men, or so it would seem. It's an interesting connection. It leads me to wonder if Gideon actually changed their names as a result of this battle to sort of memorialize what happened. But in any case, Gideon goes back. He takes a route called the Ascent of Harries, which is a road that just runs east to west near these two towns. And as he approaches the towns, he captures this boy, the the boy from the town of Sukkoth, and he forces him to tell him the names of the elders so he would know when he gets to the city who to demand and pull out and take out into the field because if clearly once he got there and he started to take those elders, it's likely that no one was going to give up the names of these guys. Now he knows. He doesn't need them. Then he shows up and he says, Hey, hey, look who I got. Remember those two guys you said I weren't going to get? I got them. They're right here. And his reminder is, I told you I'd be back, and I'm back, Arnold Schwarzenegger style. And he says, now it's time to own up to what I said. I'm going to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. Once more, does this look like the actions of a man who recognizes that God won the battle? And again, I'm not saying these two towns don't deserve some recompense for what they did. They were not doing the right thing by God's people. But that's not the main issue here. The issue is not what they deserve. The issue is what Gideon is doing in response to it all. It's helpful for us to remember that these Israelites didn't express a lack of confidence in God. No one ever put that test to them. No one ever said, do you think God can win this battle? I'm here on God's behalf. I'm God's messenger. There was no conversation like that. They never had a chance to get into that conversation. No, they lacked confidence in Gideon and those 300 men. And they should not have had confidence in Gideon. There's no reason for them to have confidence in Gideon. Therefore, had Gideon pointed out to those people that it was God who had brought them, God, who had demanded the food, God, who was doing the work, well, then his indignation at their refusal would have been justified. But as it is, it's merely wounded ego. And he's acting on the basis of that. So he takes his revenge against both cities. He does what he says, including killing the men of Penuel, which is a severe penalty. He's looking more and more like a man who's drunk on power and success. And certainly not like a man living with the grace and counsel of the Lord. And notice again, the Lord has never heard to give Gideon any instructions concerning these cities or what he's doing at all. Gideon appears to be going rogue here. So next he takes the kings back to Canaan. And we'll finish with this this morning, verses 18 through 21. Then he said to Zebah and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, Well, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. He said, Well, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Zeba and Zelmonah said, Rise up yourself and fall on us, for as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zelmuna, and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camel's necks. So, He gets them back to the land, to Ophrah, basically, in Canaan. And he interrogates the kings here. And he begins going back to a period of time before all the battles began. He says, do you remember ever killing some people in Tabor? Do you remember that? And we don't know anything about this moment except for what's discussed here. So from what we can gather, it sounds as if at some point in the past, these kings, when they raided through the land, had come upon some people in Tabor, in Mount Tabor, and they had killed them. And these people turned out to be Gideon's own natural brothers, the the sons of his mother, as he's put it. And that was something Gideon had held on as a grudge. And now that he had these men at his disposal, he says, hey, I want to take you back in time. You remember these guys? Yeah. And they said, yeah. He says, these men were like you, resembling sons of kings. Now, that phrase is very interesting because it indicates Gideon was a man like these others with an impressive stature. You ever imagine Gideon, this weak little kid that always gets sand kicked in his face at the, at the beach? Is that how you kind of imagine him? And based on his earlier moments when he's so weak and timid and so on, you, you take all of that and you, you drive forward with it in your imagination and you picture a guy who is characteristic of that physically. Small, meek, smile like that. No, he wasn't. He's a big guy. He's strong. He looks like the son of a king. That's a way of saying he looks mighty, like he has the right to rule. Like you would put him on a horse and put a statue of him in the center of the city. That's how this guy looked. So his physique contrasts with his inward weakness. Kind of an interesting juxtapositioning, isn't it? That's a theme, by the way, in the whole book of Judges. And it's a theme that runs all the way into First and Second Samuel. What is that theme? That the outward appearance of a man is not the fair measure of his inward strength. Outward strength is a matter of the flesh. Inward strength is a matter of spiritual issues. So, as you move through Judges, what you're going to start noticing is the judges are seen as physically very strong. I mean, Samson, we're going to get to Samson here in a little while. It's the outward strength, but it's married to an increasingly weak inward nature. And you arrive eventually where? After Judges, 1 Samuel. And who's the first guy they think needs to be king? The man who looks the part but doesn't have it inside him. There's a lesson building here through these books about where God's values are and where man's values are. It's not the outward strength, but the inward one that we should be concerned with. But anyway, now you have the the strong Gideon in an opportunity to exact revenge on the Midianite kings for his brother's death. And this is the part that is so bizarre to me. And I think characteristic of this whole degeneration in Gideon's character that we're watching. He turns to his son, his firstborn we're told, And he says to his son, kill these full-grown men for me. Now, the reason he does that culturally is that in the ancient East, it was considered great dishonor for a man to die at the hands of a woman or a youth. And since these men had killed Gideon's brothers without provocation, what Gideon's preparing to do now is end their lives in the most dishonorable way he can imagine, which is to have this young child kill them, which would basically dishonor their posterity. Forevermore, they'd be known as kings who were killed by a child. But then you see that when the son is ordered to do this, the son reacts by being so afraid he won't go forward with it. In Hebrew, the word youth could also be translated child. We're not talking about his 16, 17-year-old son who is just coming of age. This is his first chance to, like, we take a kid out to shoot a deer. Hey, son, you know, why don't you take these men down and we'll all go home and have a beer together, all right? you know, It's not like that at all. We're talking about a kid who might have been just barely old enough to pick up the sword. Even allowing for this cultural difference... Gideon's choice to involve his young child in this brutal act is an indication of his bloodlust and his poor judgment. He's scarring his child, potentially. And at the very least, he is so absorbed in defending his dead family that he puts his living family in jeopardy. And when his young son recoils, then he has to take on this act for himself. I am not judging his choice to kill the kings. That was something God expected him to do. What I'm pointing out, though, is he is going beyond the call of God in that respect. And he's got his own personal interests involved now. And it's about a personal grudge and about a personal issue. And without any sense of propriety that he would take a young son and thrust him into the middle of this. How do you get like that? Where do you come from to get to that point while you're serving God? Well, the answer, friends, is because you stopped serving God and you're serving yourself under the mantle of serving God, under the, under the guise of serving God. And a lot of people do that. Some very good people do it on occasions when they're having a bad moment. And then unfortunately, a lot of people just move in that direction and never come back They make their whole ministry about themselves, taking money for multi-million dollar aircraft and the like, where their goal has long since ceased, if it ever was, for God, and it has only become about self. After the kings are dead, Gideon takes something very interesting. He takes booty, in other words, war booty. He takes that from the men. He takes two crescent-shaped ornaments which hung around camels' necks. This is something, I guess, that was common in Media, where you'd have both the camels decorated and the men themselves would wear it sometimes and they match. And since these belonged to kings, they would have been very valuable. They wouldn't have been the common man's crescent. They would have been something very ornate, probably gold and silver and jewels. So they would have made for very considerable remuneration or compensation for the men, for Gideon. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Sometimes God allowed it. But it's also a premonition of things to come for Gideon. Gideon is a judge over a freed Israel, and he's won a decisive victory by the hand of God. But now we see he's also a man deceived by his own pride and ego, and he's drunk on power. And his spiritual immaturity is about to cause him to trip up in a huge way. And these crescents, these baubles, become a source for that. When we come back next week, we'll finish this chapter as we move into the next chapter. And we'll see not only how he stumbles in this, but where it leads Israel after that. For our sake today, let's take out of this a reminder that if you seek God in your heart, God can do amazing things. Our faith is all that's required. On the other hand, if we start serving ourselves, then there's no limit to how far down that path we can go and how many people we can injure, how many things we can do to cause God regret. Let's be careful about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I I look for encouragement out of every scripture, but so often, Father, perhaps because conviction is a necessary part of teaching, I so often see things, Father, that I, I don't like, things about me or others, uh, things about the way the church operates. Father, I ask that you would uh, balance in the teaching I offer, Father, both, the good and the bad, that you would encourage in the hearts of those who heard the good things of service that they can do and that others are doing in the way your spirit moves among the hearts of your people. And yet not so much so, Father, that we forget the lessons of Gideon, the warnings, the potential for us to become too much about self and forgetting, Father, who it is we work for and for whose glory these things matter. Give us that balance, Father. Give us an encouraged, hopeful, faithful way to serve you, one that is understanding your strength and looking to you for the direction we need. But then, Father, as you bring success, whenever you bring it, counsel our hearts against pride. Keep us humble, Father. For we know, Father, we can't serve you if we start, start serving ourselves. No man can serve two masters. Thank you, Father, for that reminder. And let us be a uh, a church with a heart of service. Let us go out from here, Father, continually mindful that the days are short and that opportunities come but go. And we need to use everyone to your glory. We ask for that opportunity too. Send us away and bring us back. In Jesus' name, amen.